Thank you for checking out the podcast of Eastern Assembly of God in Baltimore, Maryland. If you would like more information about our church, please visit us at www.easternassembly.org. Praise God. Thank you for your kindness and generosity. You know, everything that you sow into the gospel will come back to you. Amen. I really believe that. And uh, every penny that you give will be used towards the gospel. And, uh, you know, we, we are a no-frills ministry. We've got, we've got teams where they're very effective and they do a great job. And God has been really, really good to us uh, to be able to do. Uh, this last year, we could only do nine crusades because Asia was closed. So we did one in Argentina and we did in Africa. And it was amazing, especially when I went back to Zambia, where I hadn't been for three, four years. And after COVID, suddenly the country was open, and it was phenomenal. I mean, the first two crusades I did there, when I, I was amazed to see the numbers of people who came to the meeting. And they were just so, people were so excited. You know, they wanted to hear the gospel. And there has been no outdoor meetings, nothing. The whole country, you know, they had forbidden outdoor meetings. So we came, and the first, first place, we had, uh, I don't know, maybe up to 100,000 people in the meeting. But we had 25,000 baptized in the Holy Ghost. The last night is always Holy Ghost night. And the last night, we had 25,000 baptized in the Holy Ghost. Second crusade, exactly the same thing happened. And just, just such, you know, it's, it's wonderful when you go out there and people's needs are met. And people, uh, I went to a restaurant to eat that was... We were actually sitting on the outside porch, and a man, man came walking who worked in that area. He said, are you Pastor Christopher Alam? I said, yeah. He said, I got saved in your crusade five years ago, and I'm in church. And he was telling us a story. So I took a picture of his and put it on Facebook. And then I get a, a message on Facebook the next day from another man from the northern part of the country. And he said, yeah, I saw that message, and I... I also got saved in a crusade. I'm a pastor. I planted five churches, and I got saved 15 years ago. So you see, you see when, when the gospel goes out, it always touches people's lives, and it produces fruit in their lives. And that is, that is really the true fruit, what happens 10 years, 15 years down the road in people's lives. That's how, that's how you see the effect of the gospel. You give it a few years, and then you see what happens in people's lives. And it's, it's wonderful. So it's a privilege to serve God. Praise God. I've been working in Africa for 35 years. And I've been working in Asia also for many years. And it is a privilege to serve God. It's a privilege to see God do his work in people's lives. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for your holy word that is able to impart life and faith into our hearts. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for everything that you did for us upon the cross of Calvary. That, Lord Jesus, you bore upon your own self all our sins, carried all our diseases, and by your stripes we have been healed. I ask you, Lord, that this morning you would let your word go with power, let it touch and affect our lives. And, Lord, I ask you to touch people's hearts, heal, heal those that are sick, do miracles in this place, and Lord, for everything you do, we give you all the glory, the honor, and the praise that you alone are worthy in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. Now, may I have a little bit more lights on the faces of the people because I'd like to see, I like to look at people's faces when I preach to them. Amen. So I'd be grateful if you could do that. Just a little bit more lights. Amen. Let's go to John chapter 11. And I'm giving you a backdrop. This is the story of the raising up of Lazarus. So Jesus raises up Lazarus, and uh, it says here in verse 45 and verse 46, it says, And then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. So it's interesting, there was this group of people who saw the raising up of Lazarus, but they reacted in two different ways. Some of them, they believed in Jesus, but the other group, they went to the Pharisees and they reported to the Pharisees that this Jesus who you are against, he's causing even more trouble and this is what he has done 
and our people are believing in him. Well, you know, one thing I learned from this, sometimes we have this assumption that if, if, that if a person would just see a miracle, he would be saved. Not necessarily true. Just because somebody sees a miracle doesn't mean he'll be saved. Because here, here, we, here we see these two groups of people. One group believed in him. The other group were exactly the same people. They were all Jews. And this group went and told the Pharisees. But the reaction of the Pharisees was, verse 53, Then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. The Pharisees decided, you know, there's only one way we can solve this problem with Jesus is to kill him, put him to death. So they decided they're going to kill Jesus. Well, let's go to the next chapter. Now, the next chapter, if we read this chapter, we understand that this miracle of the Lazarus, uh, of the raising up of Lazarus took place just before the Passover. This was in the Passover season. Now, the Israelites had seven major feasts of which Passover was the biggest feast. It was their biggest feast of the year. And the thing was that traditionally, all the Jews from the known world of that time, uh, they wanted to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So those who could afford to, those who had the means, they used to come into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And then what would happen was that those who could afford it, those who had the means, they would stay over until the next feast, which was the Feast of Pentecost. And that's why we read on the day of Pentecost that there were lots of Jews from different places who were there also. So this is what would happen. So, and then the Jews had a saying, and they still say this, next year in Jerusalem. That this is the way they bade farewell to one another after Passover. Next year I'll see you in Jerusalem. So what, would, what had happened was that there were all these people in Jerusalem at that time for the feast of the Passover. And this miracle of the raising up of Lazarus was very significant in the, in the sense that a lot of people from all over the world, Jews from all over the place, heard of this. And so there was a lot of excitement, not just because it was Passover, but it was because Jesus had done this miracle. Nobody had ever heard of anybody being raised from the dead. And Jesus had raised this man Lazarus from the dead. So it says in verse 9 and 10, it says much people in, in chapter 12, much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also whom he had raised from the dead. So it is because these people had heard of this miracle. So they wanted to see Jesus but they also wanted to see Lazarus because Lazarus was the living evidence of this wonderful miracle that Jesus had done. But look at the Pharisees again, verse 10. But the chief priest consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. You know, these people had very simplistic solutions to complex problems. Let's kill Jesus, and now it's let's kill Lazarus also. So then the next day, uh, the next day, then it says that Jesus comes riding into town on a donkey. And the people are gathered. You know, it was, there was a lot of excitement generated by this. And it says in verse 13, they took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. This was very significant because the Romans had decreed that anybody who proclaimed anybody as king other than Caesar would be charged with treason and executed. So, you know, they knew you couldn't say anybody was king other than Caesar. But, and, and the palm branch and the cry Hosanna was actually, uh, the, you know, the cry of the zealots. And the zealots were like, you know, there were many streams within uh, the people of Israel at that time. And one of the streams was, was the insurgents, those who wanted to stage a rebellion against the Romans and fight them and, 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 and uh, liberate their country. And, and, you know, one of those zealots was even in, in the team that Jesus had. You remember Simon the Zealot, he was one of the disciples. So these zealots used to follow Jesus around also. And now the zealots were all excited because Jesus is now the king. He can even raise the dead and he's going to do this. And so 
they threw off all their constraints and they came out waving palm branches and openly declaring that Jesus was their king. And so Jesus comes into Jerusalem and so there's all this excitement. Now, you understand if you look at this scenario, one thing you see is that the ministry of Jesus had never been as popular as it was at that time. Firstly, because of the raising of Lazarus. Secondly, because of the sheer number of people who were in Jerusalem and the excitement that the resurrection of Lazarus had, uh, had caused. So uh, the ministry of Jesus was at its peak of popularity, yet the Pharisees hated him more than ever more. So he was largely loved by the people, but the religious establishment hated him and they wanted to see him dead. So now what happens is that uh, we read about in verse 20, there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. So there were these Jews from Greece who happened to be there and they were among those who came to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip, who was one of the disciples of Jesus, which was a bit side of Galilee, and desired him saying, sir, we would see Jesus. You know, they, they wanted to see Jesus. Jesus was uh, the biggest, hottest item, so they wanted to see him. And Philip comes and tells Andrew, another one of the disciples. And, and again, Andrew and Philip went to Jesus and said, Jesus, you're so popular. There's people who want to see you, and there's some uh, Jews from Greece who want to see you, and this is fantastic. And Jesus immediately begins to talk about his death, that he has to die on the cross. Now, I want you to stop and think of this. Here is Jesus at the height of his popularity. His ministry is at its peak of popularity. If he was an, a modern-day American televangelist, he would have said, you know, our ratings are higher than ever before. The offerings are bigger than ever before. We have more partners. More people watch us than ever before. Maybe it's God's will that we should milk this thing and ride this wave and postpone the cross a couple more years. But not Jesus. He would not let his earthly popularity distract him from the real reason why he came to this world and that was to die for sinners. He never lost sight of the real reason why he had come to this earth. And so at the height of his popularity when they said these people want to see you, this is what he said in verse 23. And Jesus answered them. That means he responded to them, responded to them by saying, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He said, if a corn of wheat, if a grain of wheat stays as it is, then it remains what it is, a solitary grain of wheat. But if it dies and if it is buried, then it can bear much fruit. In other words, if I stay the way I am, that's the way I stay. But only if I die can I bear much fruit. And that is the reason I came to this world. I came to fulfill the purpose that God has for me. And I came to die. So, you know, I have to die. But then he talks not only of his death, but he begins to talk about you and me, those who will follow him. He who loves his life shall lose it, but he who hates his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. And if any man serve me, let him follow me. That means you want to see me, then you follow me and I'm going to the cross. Do you want to go to the cross with me? Do you want to die with me? That's what he's saying. There shall my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now, I want to, I want to pause here and say something here. This is a, a very important element of Christianity. I got saved in 1975, which was, I got saved uh, almost 47 years ago. 
And this is something that used to be preached then. You don't hear that much. Now, you know, we always have to use something to attract people to Jesus. And now it's prosperity, a better life. If you come to Jesus, he'll fix you up and he will give you this and he will give you that. That's really what the gospel has come down to. When I got saved in a Muslim country, I had never seen a Bible, never met a Christian, never even heard about Jesus. And I met a man on the street who told me about Jesus and I felt convicted. I was suicidal, I was messed up and I, I, I sensed this is, you know, God calling me and I gave my life to Jesus and I felt that all my burdens had been lifted off lifted off and I thought, you know, I'm going to follow Jesus. So three days later, I met some Christians and I said, can you help me? I want to follow Jesus. And the guy said to me, he said, so you want to follow Jesus? I said, yes. He said, do you know the conditions for following Jesus? I said, I didn't know there were any conditions. He said, there are. Sit down, I'll tell you. So I, we were in the YMCA and we sat down. I sat down right next to him and he opened his bag and pulled out a small leather-bound book, and I had never seen a Bible before. That was the first time in my life, I was 21 years old, I had ever seen a Bible. So he opened the Bible and he put it in my hand. I said, I said, look, this is, he said, this is a Bible. And I said, uh, he said, take it. I said, no, sir, I can't, because Muslims believe that you cannot touch holy, a holy book with, the, with unwashed hands. I said, sir, my hands are not washed, my hands are not clean, this is a holy book. He said, no, it's all right, it's all right, nothing will happen, you take it. So I took the book and he opened it to a certain page and that was the first time these eyes had ever seen the inside of a Bible. And he put his finger on a verse, he says, read this and read it aloud three times. And this is what it said. Those are the first words I ever read out of a Bible. It said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow after me. He made me, made me read it thrice. Then he said, do you see the conditions for following Jesus? I said, yes, sir. Uh, he said, what are they? I said, the first one is I have to deny myself. He said, are you willing to do that? I said, yeah, I guess I, I can do that. I can do that. Then he said, uh, the second condition, do you see what it is? Do you know what it means to take up the cross every day? I said, I have no idea. He says, when Jesus took up the cross, he was going to his place of execution. In the days of the Bible, if you ever saw a man going down this road with a cross, he was being taken to the place of his execution. And here Jesus is telling us that unless you're willing to die, unless you're willing to be executed, unless you're willing to die, you cannot follow me. And then he said these words I'll never forget. He said, if you're not willing to die for him, you're not fit to live for him. He said, that's the cost. That's what it costs to follow Jesus. Are you willing to follow Jesus? And you know, I was 21 years old. I joined the military when I was 13 years old. At 17, I was a combat veteran. And he said, are you willing to die? I said, sir, this is December 75. December 71, I was 17 years old. And right here in this city, I said, when we went to war, I said, I, they told us that this is jihad. And if you die, you'll go to heaven. And Muslims, Muslims normally bury their dead in shrouds. And when you go to war, you're a soldier, you carry your shroud in your backpack. I said, I had my shroud in my backpack. And if you're really, really serious, you want to die, you tear off a one or two inch wide strip of that white shroud and you tie it around your, your head. Then you wear your steel helmet on top of that. So when people see you wearing that, they know you have really given your life up. And I said that I wore that because I gave my life up. But I now realize that was wrong. And of course, if Jesus is calling me, I'm willing to give my life up. So I made my decision to take up the cross to follow Jesus. Now at that time I had no idea that there was ever any promise of healing or there was promise of financial blessings, you know, all these things. Those, it took me four or five years before I found out that those things even existed. But the first four or five years of my life, you know, I spent my first year as a Christian uh, in, in, in prison and, and, 
for preaching the gospel. And, and, and I was, the only things I was promised was uh, prison, persecution, and death. Prison, persecution, and death. And the reward was eternal life. That was my understanding was of Christianity. And knowing that, if you wanted to follow Jesus, you had to embrace that. Because you knew that we are just passing through the, in this world. And there's nothing in this world that really attracts us. There's nothing in this world that is permanent. And there's nothing in this world worth holding on to. But we are going to go to heaven where we will be with Jesus forever. Now, later on, I found out that there were other blessings. There was blessings of, 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 of reward. You know, God wants to bless us materially. God wants to uh, bless, you know, there's healing, there's peace of mind, there's other things God gives us. But it's good to have that as a background instead of these other things, these temporal things given as the first thing offered to you. Do you understand what I'm saying? So this is an element of Jesus which, I don't know, somewhere down the line it disappeared. I don't know why it disappeared, where it disappeared to, but unfortunately this is something that needs to be preached. This is something that needs to be understood. That Jesus, he calls us to deny ourselves and to take up the cross and follow him. Amen. Amen. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross every single day and follow me. Amen. And then as the man said to me, he said, if you are not ready to die for him, we are not fit to live for him. Now that being, keeping that in perspective, I also learned other things that for someone like me, I realized that I am immortal until I fulfill God's purpose for my life. Just because I'm ready to die, it does not mean that I am the devil's victim. He can take me out anytime he wants to. I have that much authority over him. And Jesus is the one who holds the keys to the death, to death and to the grave. Satan is not the one who holds the keys. He's not the one who decides when it's my time to go. When it's time, my time to go is between me and God and not the devil. Amen. So we have to understand that also. We have to understand spiritual authority that we have in Jesus, that Satan is under our feet and he, he no longer has the power to decide. He no longer holds the keys to take me out whenever he wants to. It's between me and God. But at the same time, I live my life as one who's prepared to go at any time. We do not fear death. We do not fear the devil. We do not fear any of the works of Satan. We have to learn to live that way. We have to learn to live that way. Amen. So that's why Jesus said, he says, anyone who, who loves this life will lose it. If you love this life, you'll lose it. So many people are afraid to die because they love this life. And the reason they love this life is because they don't live their lives from an eternal perspective. All they see is the material things around them and they want to live as long as they can to hold on to these things, to enjoy these things. And they say, oh yeah, I believe in heaven, but they don't see anything beyond the veil. It's all dark. But let me tell you, heaven is a real place. It's a far more wonderful place than this. Amen. Hallelujah. Now I'm going to say this. I've never said in a public meeting. 1985, I was caught up and I went to heaven. I went to heaven. I saw Jesus. I walked there. And there was a purpose with that. It wasn't like something that just happened. I never wanted it. I never desired it, but happened. But when I came back from there, I realized one thing. Heaven is a real place. And we long to go there. And there are saints there. I saw some of my friends who had gone before me. They were there. And as we live our lives, a lot of people we love who have meant more to us, one thing you'll realize as you get older, that the number of people you know in heaven increases. You know, when you're young, you know hardly anybody who's up there. So you say, heaven is a very abstract thing. Now I know so many people there. 
And when, so some, when someone close to you dies, you say, heaven just got sweeter. That's what we say, you know. So heaven is a real place. And then you realize how much wonderful, it, more wonderful it is than earth. And really, there's that pull of heaven on our, earth, on, on our hearts. But the reason we are here is to fulfill the purposes and the will of God. There are chains that are yet to be broken. There are people who need to be set free. And that's why we choose to live. Amen. We live to fulfill the purpose of God, not because we are afraid to die or we love the things we have here too much, you know. Amen? I have my Hyundai parked outside. I can leave it and go. I don't care. Somebody gave me a $10,000 Rolex watch. I have it at home. I can leave it and go. means nothing to me. Those things mean nothing. Zilch. The only thing that means anything to me on this earth are the things I can take with me to heaven. And the only thing I can take with me to heaven are the souls that I win for Jesus. That's why I love these altar calls. I love those altar calls. I love it when people get saved and come to Jesus because those are people I'm taking with me. Hallelujah. So we don't live alone. We don't go there alone. Amen. Anyway, I got carried away. So let me, let me go back to my subject. But look at this. When Jesus finishes this speech, then he says, verse 27, Now is my soul troubled, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I to this hour. So when this was happening, Jesus was feeling this anguish in his soul. And, and he says, I, and he admitted openly, he says, I feel this, this anguish in my heart. So what shall I do? Shall I say, Father, Save me from this. He said, no, I came to the earth for this. This suffering that I'm, I, I'm going, you know, my, this death, I'm going to die. I came to the earth for this. So I'm not going to ask the Father to spare me from this. I came for this hour. And then he said, verse 28, Father, glorify thy name. Now this is interesting because the first thing he said and the last thing he says in this little speech he made, he talked about the glory of God. The first one in verse 23, he says, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And then in verse 28, he says, Father, glorify thy name. He talks about Father, be glorified. The Son of Man shall be glorified. Now, when we think of the glory of God, this expression, the glory of God, I remember when I went to Bible school in 1981 and they were talking about the glory of God. That was something that people used to talk about. And the glory of God, the first thing I remember, I I'd never heard this before. They talked about the glory cloud. They talk about sometimes in a service, you know, that like a mist or a cloud would appear in the sanctuary and that they called it the glory cloud. And so I remember we were then Bible school students. So whenever, whenever we had a powerful meeting, I'd be looking to see if there's any, you know, glory cloud there because that was the presence of God. And then there were other things that were glory. If a miracle would take place, that was the glory of God. It was a powerful testimony. If there was a powerful testimony, that was the glory of God. Sometimes people would fall on the ground. That was the glory of God. There was always, the glory of God was always something wonderful that, you know, that would manifest itself. But here Jesus is talking about something else as being the glory of God. He's talking about the time when they would arrest him and they would strip him of his clothes and they would tie him up. And the, then the Romans would take a flagrum, which was a, a, a whip with, with nine belts of leather. And each one of those straps of leather would have sharp pieces of metal and bone and how they whipped him, and they whipped him, and they whipped him. And with each cut of the whip, strips of skin and pieces of flesh were torn off his back. And the psalmist said that plowmen have plowed my back and made long furrows. So his back looked like a field that had been plowed, and his precious blood just flowed from his wounds. Then they, they crowned him with thorns, and those, that blood just poured down his face. Then they took a two by four and they beat him and beat him. And the prophet Isaiah in the 52nd chapter said that his face was disfigured beyond recognition. 
And so here he stood covered with blood, wounded, bleeding. Then they mocked him and they blasphemed him and they cursed him and they spat upon him. And there he stood, the son of God, covered with blood, covered with the spit of sinner, uh, sinners and covered with dirt. And they made him carry that cross across town to Calvary where people, while people were screaming and blaspheming him and laughing at him and mocking, mocking him. And then they nailed him to the cross and he hung upon that cross for six long and excruciating hours. And the sins of all mankind and the diseases of all mankind were put upon him and he was rejected by men and not only rejected by men, but he was rejected by God himself. And he even said, my father, why have you forsaken me? For the first time in eternity, Jesus experienced rejection from the father because of our sins. And then he died a lonely, rejected man. And that horrible suffering and death, he calls that glorious. He refers to that, that as being glorified. Why? Well, it is what happened when Jesus was upon the cross that made that horrible death upon the cross so glorious. And I'm going to give you the five reasons why the cross of Jesus was so glorious. The first reason we see in verse 31. Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. When Jesus was upon that cross, God judged all mankind for its sins. When Jesus was upon the cross, God took the combined sins of every human being from Adam until the last human being who will be born on this earth. Your sins, my sins, our open sins, our hidden sins, our secret sins, sins that we have committed that nobody else has ever heard about. We have all done things that we have never told any other human being because we are so ashamed that if people found out what we have done, they would reject us and turn their faces from us. But God saw all that. And he put all that upon Jesus. And he looked at Jesus. And he judged Jesus because of our sins. Jesus was judged for the sins, the iniquities, and the transgressions of mankind. And that's where God dealt with the sin problem. Amen. Amen. God judged the sins of the world in Jesus. Now, what does that mean? That means that today, God is not in judgment mode. God is in salvation mode. He's saying to mankind, he's saying to the worst of all sinners, he said, come now and let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, you shall be white as snow. God is extending his hand of forgiveness, of mercy. That's why the gospel is a redemptive gospel. Our message should always be redemptive. And may I remind you, ladies and gentlemen, that the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit, especially the gifts of the prophecy, has not been given to the church for us to go and pronounce judgment over people. We are not called to proclaim judgment. We are called to proclaim the good news of Jesus. That if you are a sinner, if you are sick, doesn't matter what you have done, Jesus has paid the price for your sins and you can be saved. Hallelujah. Amen. You know, that's, can I say something? One of my, I know some of you would be, would be getting mad at me, but it's okay. If I step on your toes, you got your toes in the wrong place. <laughs> One of the things I hate the most is the, is the politicized Christianity of America. It makes us mean. It makes us angry. You know what I'm saying? You listen to this talk show hosts and you listen to these preachers who it's all about politics and uh, you hate liberals, you hate Democrats and we forget that 
these are people who Jesus died for and that I was just like them before I came to Jesus. And the only reason they are like there is because they don't know Jesus. And I don't like anything that takes away from me the redemptive message of the gospel so that when I open my mouth, I have nothing redemptive. I have nothing merciful to say to people. All I'm doing is just angry at people and venting my anger and going, yeah, 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 you know. You're not far from Washington. That's what they all like. And even those who say they're born again, they talk that way. And I hate that. Because it has nothing to do with the life of Christ that lives in us. With, it's not the spirit of God. Remember when Jesus said to those disciples who wanted to call down fire from heaven. You know what he said? He said, you don't know what spirit you are. If you get angry and worked up because of the sins of people. You're not bad. You have just forgotten what spirit you are. You have just forgotten who lives in you. Don't forget that. The gospel is redemptive. Our message should always be redemptive. And I tell people, if you don't have anything redemptive to say, anything merciful to say, even Paul said in Philippians, whatsoever is good and merciful and pure, think of those things. Uh, if, if your mind doesn't, you know, I say, one thing you could do, do yourself a favor, just keep your mouth shut. Are you with me? You know where I'm coming from. There are sins in the world. But our message is not a message of condemnation and judgment. Condemnation and judgment never saved anybody. But our message is of the cross and the blood of Jesus that offers salvation to the worst of all sinners. Doesn't matter what people have done. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God, praise God, praise God, praise God, praise God. You know, hate is all over the world, but we are the only country in the world where we use Christianity and Christian values to hate people. That's wrong. We are not the Taliban. Do you understand? We are the ones who say, Jesus lives in me. Hallelujah. That's why, thank God for the gospel that saved me. Thank God for the gospel that saved me. Thank God for the gospel that saved you. That is a redemptive gospel. Praise God. So, now is the judgment of the world. Now, there will come a time of judgment. The Bible says there will be a judgment, you know, when man will stand before God and God will deal with that. You know, they will, God, God is going to judge the world. But that time is not now. Now is the time of preaching the gospel of forgiveness, of redemption, of mercy to all sinners. Hallelujah. Come now and let us reason together. Though your sins shall be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Hallelujah. Praise God. Now, the second reason why the cross of Jesus is so glorious is that it says in the second part of verse 31, now shall the prince of the world be cast out. The second reason why the cross of Jesus is so glorious is because upon the cross, Jesus defeated Satan decisively and once and for all. It says in Colossians 2.15, and having spoiled, and the word spoiled means disarmed, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly that he did it not in hiding, not in secret, but openly triumphing over them at the cross. That means at the cross, Jesus won a total and decisive victory over Satan and over all his powers. That is why Jesus says, Behold, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. So you should never fear the devil because we have the power to cast out devils. Amen. And you don't live your life being afraid of curses. Now, there are many kinds of curses. There's curses that people can imprecate upon you. Right? But they can't touch you because nobody can curse somebody who God has blessed. I have witch doctors cursing me. 
either they get saved and delivered or they die. When witch doctors curse me, I have a track record of that. They either die or they get saved. Amen? Nothing has harmed me because of witch doctors, curses, the generational curses. People talk about generational curses. Well, even those were broken by Jesus. Amen? Yes, there are generational curses in the Bible, but they don't come upon the believer. If you are saved and washed in the, in the blood of Jesus, no curse can touch you because God has decided to bless you. Ephesians 1 verse 3 says that, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every blessing in Jesus Christ in the heavenly realms. We are a blessed people. We cannot be cursed. Amen. Praise God. So, Jesus has totally defeated Satan once and for all at the cross. That's the second reason the cross of Jesus is so glorious. The third reason why the cross of Jesus is glorious, we see in Colossians 2.14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. What is he talking about? That means that the... Jesus removed the law of Moses as our means of salvation. Now, in the Old Testament, for the Jews, this was God's deal with them. Here's the law of Moses. You keep the law, you're safe. But he said, uh -huh, but listen, if you break one of the laws, the littlest of the laws, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. Right? So you can't say, well, he broke you know, 10 laws, I've broken only one, so I am better than, no, no, no. You break one of the laws, you are as guilty as anybody else who has broken the whole law. That's why you never play along with the, play with the law of Moses. You don't even mess with that. Now, certain, certain Christians, they tend to take certain elements of the law as if those things would enhance your Christian experience. Do you understand what I'm saying? They take certain Jewish things. I've got Jewish friends who are born again. They don't touch those things because they have lived under the law. What they don't like is wannabe Jews. Wannabe Jew is a person who is not a Jew, knows nothing about Judaism, but he thinks if you blow a shofar, it will kind of, you know, or, or do, do some of those things. Listen, don't touch those things because Jesus fulfilled the law and then he nailed it to the cross. So our salvation comes through the blood of Jesus alone. Christ is sufficient for you and me. You don't need anything else. Jesus died upon the cross, bore my sins, and he fulfilled the law. And when I trust him, when I put my faith on him, God treats me as if I have kept the whole law. That is the power of my righteousness that I receive by faith. The righteousness if I, that I could earn is the kind of righteousness that I would my, spend my whole life keeping the whole law and never fail. I'd be perfect as a person. And Paul said, there's no one like that. Himself included. No one. There's not, not one. Nobody is righteous to the works of the law. Not one. So I'm not even going to go there. I'm not even going to try. I'm not going to say I'm the first person in the 6,000 years of human history who have achieved the state of righteousness to, through keeping the law. I'm not even going to go there, but I will find my righteousness in faith in Jesus. And that righteousness through Jesus is the equivalent of somebody who has been able to keep the entire law and is 100% pleasing before God. So when you come to Jesus, God looks at you as if you have never sinned. That's what righteousness means. That just the way you are, God looks at you as somebody who has never sinned, who has never failed. Hallelujah. Can you imagine that that's the way the Father looks at you today? Amen? Now, so that's why we have certain Pentecostal cliches that I will never use. One of them is, oh, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. No, 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 no. I was a sinner. And I got saved by grace. And now I'm a child of God. I'm the righteousness of God. Amen? I'm not going to identify I'm just a sinner. I'm, no, no, I was a sinner. Yes, that's in my past. But all things have passed away. All things have become new. I am 
a child of God. I am the righteousness of God. Righteousness means the ability to stand before God without guilt or condemnation because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Because of Jesus, I can stand before God without guilt. If I feel guilt, that's because I'm looking at myself and not at Jesus. Amen? So that's the third reason the cross is so glorious. The fourth reason why the cross is so glorious is that upon the cross, Jesus bore upon himself our physical, mental, and emotional diseases and infirmities. Isaiah 53 verses 4 and 5 declares, Surely, that means without a shred of doubt, Jesus has borne our diseases and he has carried our pains. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we were healed. Hallelujah. Amen. In the Assemblies of God, Article 12 of our 16-point fundamental truths, it says, and I'm reading it, I've written it down, it says, divine healing is an integral part of the gospel. That means it is as much the gospel as is salvation. So you can't say, oh, it's salvation that is important. Healing is not important. It is important. You know why it's important? Because Jesus suffered for it. Anything he suffered to obtain for us is important. And it has to be shouted. It has to be believed in. It has to be preached. Because he was whipped and bruised and beaten for us, bearing our diseases, carrying our infirmities. It is an integral part of the gospel. Deliverance from sickness is provided for in the atonement and is the privilege of all believers. He bore our diseases. He carried our pains. But now, he bore our physical diseases, but he also bore our mental and emotional diseases. These days, that's a very hot topic. 20 years ago, nobody talked about it. It was a thing nobody talked about. If someone was mentally, emotionally not doing well, nobody talked about it, but it is a disease. And my spiritual father, Kenneth E. Hagen, when I was in Bible school, center, 40 years ago, he said, he said, just like a person can be sick in his body, he can also be sick in his mind. Just like a person can be sick in his body, he can be sick. And it doesn't mean if someone has emotional, mental thing, it doesn't mean he's demon-possessed. It, does, it doesn't mean he has demons. He can just be sick. But you can also be sick in your body because you have demons. We remember when Jesus cast the spirit of infirmity out of somebody. So it can be, but it doesn't have to be. People can be sick in their minds. And so Jesus, praise God for that, has provided healing for every human being in, in, in the body as well as in the mind as well as in the emotions. And we need to take a hold of that and take a hold of that and believe it and speak it with our mouth and say, I believe what Jesus has done for me. You know, there comes a time when you pray for healing, but there comes a time when you stop praying for healing because you've prayed enough and you've got to know in your own spirit when to do that. You stop asking for healing and begin to thank God that it is provided for you. And begin to thank God and say, and that, that thanking God actually is not based on your feelings or what your body says to you, but it is based on you looking at what Jesus has done on the cross. So you say, thank you, Jesus, that you bore my diseases, carried my pains, and by your stripes I have been healed. I thank you. That is my right and my privilege and my heritage, and I take it by faith, and I thank you that by your stripes I've been healed. So you do that. Now, the thing is that how long do you do that? Because there are people sitting here who have suffered from a disease for many years. Well, as long as you have breath, you keep on believing God. Never give up. I mean, think of, think, you know, if you look at the ministry of Jesus, do you know that most of the people that we read about in, in, the, in the gospel, most of the accounts of healings, some of them have, were born that way. They were that way for 30, 40 years until Jesus met them. Can you imagine if somebody had said to, like, like the man who was born blind, blind Bartimaeus had been sick, you know, been blind all his life, and Jesus comes by, and Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? He said, oh, there's no point. I've been praying for so many years. Nothing has happened. Just bless me and move on. 
He didn't do that. He said, Lord, I want my sight. You've got to keep your faith fresh by believing and acknowledging that's for you. And even if you have suffered from it for a long time, that is no indication that God doesn't want to heal you. You know, sometimes if things don't happen, we Pentecostals have great faith for 15 seconds. <laughs> Happen, oh, glory, hallelujah, oh, 15 seconds. Oh, oh, oh. Maybe it wasn't the will of God. Then we begin to preach it to others. Well, sometimes it's not the will of God. Shut up, how do you know that? Is, do you have a scripture for it? If you don't have a scripture for it, what are you basing it on? My experience, well, my experience, I've seen people healed, I've seen people not healed. What is that proof? Proves nothing. My experience proves nothing. The only thing that is valid is what the Bible says. And my Bible says, he bore my diseases, carried my pains. With his stripes I'm healed. Hallelujah. Amen. And that, that is what we stand on. Amen. So that's, that's, that's one reason why the cross, that's the Fourth reason why the cross of Jesus is so glorious is because upon that cross he bore, he actually took upon himself as our substitute all of our diseases and all of our pains. So if he has done it and you still are carrying it in your body, the first thing you should do, don't own that disease. Don't say, my heart trouble or my this. No, it's not yours. It's an alien entity that has attached itself to you. And like Paul shook that snake off into the fire, you shake that thing off by saying, this is not mine. What I am is I'm healed by the stripes of Jesus. And, and this, you know, it doesn't belong. Don't own it. Sometimes when something is on you for a long time, you begin to own it. Don't own it. Jesus owned it. He bore it for you and for me. You are not a sick person trying to get healed. You are a healed person shaking off a disease that has attached itself to you. Hallelujah. Praise God. This is the gospel. Amen. Okay, let me finish this. Wrap this up and then I'll let you go. I'm just as hungry as you are. Reason number five. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he says, when I shall be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. When Jesus was nailed to the cross and that cross was lifted up, suddenly he drew all men unto himself. The cross draws people unto him. And Paul said in Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus... You who sometimes were far off are brought near through the blood of Christ. The cross of Jesus draws people, people like me, Muslims, Jews, Hindus, Buddhists, no matter who you are, it draws us to Jesus. You know, there's something interesting I want to finish with. When Paul first came to the European continent to preach the gospel, uh, when my wife and we have, my wife and I, we have been to Athens, Greece several times, and uh, you know, you, you, you got the Acropolis, the, the Parthenon, where the big, you know, the Greek temple is. And when you come right down the hill, uh, there's, a, there's a place called Mars Hill. It's mentioned in the Bible, but most people don't know where it is. But there's a little bronze plaque. Where it's so dirty, you really have to look for it. And he said, this is Mars Hill. This is the place where Paul first preached the gospel. Now, interestingly, Paul was not a dummy. Paul was a very smart man. And not only was he theologically schooled, but intellectually, his mind was as sharp as the sharpest philosophers of his age. So when he came to, uh, to, to Athens, and that was the first place he preached in the European continent, and Athens was the center of philosophy. The Greeks, they loved philosophy. So he decided to engage the Greek philosophers in philosophical debate, thinking that he would kind of bring the gospel to them through philosophy. Because the gospel is also a philosophy, you know, the philosophy of Christ. So he, he did that, and, but he didn't make any headway. Nothing, nothing really happened, nothing. That's why, although Athens was the center of philosophy and commerce and everything, it was the biggest city in that region, there is no letter 
in the New Testament to the church in Athens. Because Paul didn't have any impact there. So what he did, the next city he went to was Corinth. And he made up his mind that I'm not going to make the same mistake in Corinth that I made in Athens. So when he came to Corinth, he preached Christ crucified. He preached the cross. And from that, there was a tremendous move of God. And the church in Corinth was one of the major churches so that two of the most, were well, the longest and the most significant epistles in the New Testament, he wrote to the church in Corinth. And this is what he writes to the church in Corinth. And he says, verse in, in chapter 2, he says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, I came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Do you understand where he's coming from? I'm not going to come to you with philosophy, because I tried that. It didn't work. But I'll preach Christ crucified. That is the power of Christianity, the message of Jesus Christ crucified. Because the glory of the cross of Jesus, that's what brings salvation to sinners, brings healing to the sick, brings deliverance to the op oppressed. It brings, it brings liberation. And then it draws all men unto him. You know, like I showed you those pictures, some of the places I, I've been to, uh, like some of the places I'll go to now, I'm leaving tomorrow. They never even heard of Jesus. If you, if you stop someone on the street, do you know Jesus? They say, who is he? Is he a sportsman? Is he a movie star? Who are you talking about? Can you imagine going to a place like that? In America, even if people are not Christians, they have an idea of who Jesus is. Go to those places. So I remember years ago when I began to go there, I said, Lord, what do you preach to them? I mean, do you, where do you start? Jesus said, just preach the cross. And I preached the cross. And I remember one of those places when I, while I was preaching the cross, talking about the cross and the sufferings of Jesus, how he bore our sins, how he bore our diseases, people came running to the front by the thousands, crying out to God to be saved. And I was just standing looking at them. I didn't know what had happened. But you know, I realized what happened is that when you preach the cross and the blood of Jesus, the Holy Spirit gets to work. The Holy Spirit does not endorse man's sanitized, seeker-friendly gospel. The Holy Spirit gets behind the gory, bloody cross of Jesus because that's where salvation is. People ask me, you were a Muslim, how do you share the gospel with Muslims? You know what to do? Just talk about the cross. Talk about the cross. Tell them how Jesus suffered for them, bled for them, died for them, bore their sins and diseases. And watch what God can do. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The cross is the glory of God. Even today, 2,000 years later, everything you could ever want, everything that could ever need is found in the cross. Hallelujah. Let's bow our heads together. While your heads are bowed, I just want to ask, I know church time, Sunday morning, if there's anybody here who says, Pastor Christopher, if you say, I need to get saved or I need to make things right with God or if I, if I die today, I don't know whether I'm going to heaven or to hell. Whatever the condition of your soul is, if you need to make things right with God, this is the time and I really, really, really want to pray with you. So if that is your situation, you need to make things right with God. You need to give your life to Jesus. Let me just see your hand. If you raise up your hand so I know who you are because I would really want to pray with you. God bless you, madam. God bless you, sir. Anybody else? Anybody else? God bless you right there. 
else need to make things right with God, need their sins forgiven. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we thank you. Okay, those of you who put your hand up, could you please stand to your feet there? Thank you, sir. God bless you. Just, just stand to your feet. I don't want to embarrass you. I had to do this myself. And now it's your turn. Need to make things right with God. Just stand to your feet. And please come and join me in the front. Please, God bless you. Just join me. Pastor Ed, would you come and stand with me? God bless you, sir. God bless you. God bless you, mother. God bless you, sir. God bless you, mother. God bless you, young man. You did the right thing. It's always the right thing to do. Just come move forward and make your line here, please. God bless you, sir. Sir. God bless you. Pastor Ed, would you come? God bless you, sir. You know, I'm, I'm just here today. I'm leaving. But next Sunday when you come back, Pastor Ed will be here. Pastor, would you lead them in, in a prayer to receive Jesus? So I'm going to lead you in prayers if I was you because 40 some years ago it was me who needed to open that door and I'm going to ask the congregation I want you to pray along in support of them okay everybody right now dear Jesus I know that I've sinned and that I need a savior I believe you died for me Jesus you shed your blood and you rose again and right now I open the door of my heart Come in, Jesus. Come in, Jesus. Wash me clean and birth your new life. Birth your new life. Inside of me. Inside of me. And I thank you for it. Thank you. That you're doing it right now. Doing it right now. In Jesus' name. Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen and amen. Praise Do God. it, Father, right now, Lord. Thank you, Father. Make Father, I pray for these precious clean. people. Put your hand upon them, Father. Let not one fall by the wayside. But let each one be raised up on the last day. We honor you and glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're going to give you some packages, but could you, can I have your attention for a minute? I want to tell you something, and I share this with people wherever I go. I call this the, you know, when, when, when you come to a meeting like this and you come forward to pray a prayer, it's actually a step of faith. And, but it's also like sowing a seed in the ground. And when you, when you sow a seed in the ground, you have to water the seed to make it grow. Because you can come to a meeting and pray and then you go back home and then your life goes back to, to normal. So if you do these four things, I call it the four steps to victory, you will say, you will believe me, you will see huge changes in your life and I did that. I've been there myself. The first step is read your Bible every day. Now if you ask, where can I, where should I start? I would say, start with the Gospel of John because the simplest is the easiest to understand. If you don't have a Bible, pastor, you can help them get a Bible, right? So that's the, because you see, when you read the Bible, there's something about the Bible. The Bible is the only book that has the power to change the life of the reader. It's the Word of God. It's not just a book. It's the Word of God. When you read it, it actually works on you. The Bible will tell you who you are as a child of God. And all it will also tell you your expectations from God, what you can expect from God, and your faith will grow. When you read the Bible, many wonderful things happen in your heart. The second thing is pray. Now, when you read the Bible, God speaks to you. When you pray, you talk to God. So, prayer is actually not a uh, ritual, but it is talking to God like a child speaks to its father. Now, I have children, I have grandchildren, when they want something, they talk to me, they you know, that's prayer. That's in the same way we talk to God. You know, talk, we, we talk to God. And, and so you, you, you talk to God. And you bring to God even, you start with the basic things you have. You, you know, for example, you need a job or, you know, talk to God about it. Believe me, you will see amazing things happen. How God will move things and circumstances and make things happen for you. It's amazing. It's really, it's really... Pray, you know, it's just, it's not like people say, oh, I'll pray for world peace. No, don't pray for world peace. Pray for your own situation, okay? 
So number one is read the Bible, pray. Third is share your faith with others. When I gave my life to Jesus, the next day I was telling all my friends because I was so excited. I, it got me into a lot of trouble, but that's okay. But you, you share your faith with others. You develop a habit of sharing your faith with others. And fourth thing is be in church. And I tell you why. You see, when I, when I came to Jesus, I realized, really, I, I hated my life. I would look at the mirror and I hated my life. I hated myself. I hated what I had become. And all of you who came here, you're not really happy with the way things are. That's why you are here. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here, right? And, and, and you see, the reason why you become the way you are is because of the people around you who influence you. The kind of people who influence you, who have an inroad into your heart, you end up becoming like them. Even if you don't like them or like their ways, you become like that yourself. It's just the way we are. We are people who are shaped by our influences. So I really disliked what I had become. But then what happened when I got saved and I was suddenly with these people who love Jesus, who love people, and I thought, wow, they, I want to be like them. I want to be like these people. And so, and I realized I couldn't meet those people in the disco or the places I used to go. That's why I started going to church because I, I like the company of those people. I, I love to be around people whose hearts are full of love. I love to be around people, uh, you know, or people who had faith, people who had love. And so that's why I started going to church. Purely selfish reason, because I wanted something. And then slowly I began to see how my life began to change and to evolve. People, uh, you know, I developed relationships and I had new friends and people spoke into my life. And, uh, and I received teaching, preaching from the Word of God. People prayed for me. And that's how my transformation became, began. And that's why I am where I am today. So there's no limit to what God can do in your life. But it's up to you to give yourself to those things. So read your Bible and pray. Talk to God about small things. And thirdly, share your faith with others. And fourthly, be in church. And uh, if you, if you, since you were here this morning, you gave your life to Jesus here. If you live in the area, I think this would be the best place for you to be. But if you're visiting, I'm sure we can organize something. We can introduce you to some church where you live. But it's important that you're involved in something, right? Pastor, I hand it to you, Pastor. What should we do with them? Do everything he said, and there's a book in the packet that'll help you even more. Basically yeah. reinforce what he said. Read Amen. the book, come back Amen. next Sunday. Okay, can we do one thing before they go back? Can I have some people on the church, just come put your hands on them, pray for them, and bless them. Can I have some people just surround them with faith, surround them with love, and just pray for them. Have some more people, just come. Put your hand on, hands on them. Come here and to the front also, put your, hand on, put your hands on them. Just pray for them, pray for their lives, their families. Pray blessings over them. And if God has given you a word, speak that word over them. I want someone to lay hands on this brother. Sir, would you come here? Sir? 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 Thank you. We are thankful for your life. We are thankful that you are here. We are thankful for, the, for what God has done in your life this morning. And we are thankful for what he will continue to do in your life as you walk with Jesus, as you walk with God. Thank you, Father, in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Father, bless them, Father. Touch them in the name of Jesus. Lord, thank you. You will make it happen, Father. You will make it happen for them. And you will bless them in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus.